Well, Jay, here we are, as promised. Now, we teased in the 100th episode that we were going to have a special episode, and that's what this one is. So we are pretty fired up to be talking to the chap that we are going to be talking to, none other than Will Page. Oh, yeah. Will Page is a former economist at Spotify, former chief economist at Spotify, and PRS for music. That's where he pioneered rockonomics that you and I have talked about so much. At at PRS, he published work on Radiohead's In Rainbows and saving BBC Six music. At Spotify, he helped redefine catalog. You know, he also uncovered the anatomy of a hit and articulated the global value of music copyright. Indeed. And his first book, Tarzan Economics, Eight Principles in Pivoting Through Disruption, was published back in April of 2021, was nominated uh, by the Financial Times as a best business book that month. He's a passionate communicator. His work is regularly featured in Billboard, The Economist, and The Financial Times. And his most recent article argued the music industry makes more money, but has more mouths to feed. Go figure. Oh, yeah. And Yeah, and if you listen to this show, you'll know that he's the author of an amazing article that we did a deep dive on uh, called Twitch's Rockonomics. And as they love to say in the UK, he is a visiting fellow at the London School of Economics and a fellow at the Royal Society of the Arts. Talk about the dichotomy of skill sets. Yes, and finally, uh, Will is a co-host of one of my favorite podcasts called Bubble Trouble, uh, he does that with independent analyst Richard Kramer, uh, and that lays out some inconvenient truths about how financial markets really work and, and much more. So without further ado, celebrating our 100th episode of the Your Morning Coffee podcast, here's Will Page. Let it roll. Stand by for transmission. This is London Coffee. Wake up! Your morning coffee is on the air. 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 For the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. And now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Will Page, thank you so much for joining us today. I wanted to kick it off uh, by talking about a report from Mark Mulligan at Midia. And for those that don't know, Mark is the managing director of Midia, which is a uh, media and tech analysis company based in London. You've had a chance to review Mark's latest music industry forecast. What did you learn? Well, firstly, a big hat tip to Mark Mulligan and the whole team. They are so prolific. I'm not sure they actually sleep because they're just knocking it out time and time again with work and 
on this occasion, he's excelled in itself. I think this forecast is really important, really timely. I think there's a lot of confusion, a lot of debate about where the business is going. We've climbed a great mountain. Now, how do you know you're at the top? <laughs> I mean, you get to what you think is the top. Is there another mountain to climb? But this is a good one. I mean, I want to really stress to the industry here, we've now got a good, credible, well-thought-out podcast and uh, forecast for the music industry. And yes, it's more growth. I'm not saying any stalling, I'm not seeing too much saturation. I am seeing more growth, but it's different growth, Jay. It's different growth. I'll give you a couple of sort of headlines we can get into it. One, the RPU figure, which is interesting, the average revenue per customer, is constant in their forecast. So we've heard for years that RPU is declining. They have it leveling off. And there could be a bunch of reasons that we can get into about why that might be happening. Um, two, they have this thing called non-DSP revenues, which is interesting when we think about the alphabet soup of how we talk about the music industry, like all these acronyms you have to get your head around. We now have DSP revenues, get that, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, but non-DSP revenues. And that's going to become a big part of this business. So Peloton isn't a DSP, it's something else, but it's a top 10 account holder for pretty much all major record labels right now. Third one, they put, uh, they put their money on vinyl petering out by 2026, 27, which based on my recent bank statements, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. But they're saying that vinyl, you know, its number is going to be up in a few years' time. So that's an interesting observation. And then th- finally, I think the other one which jumped out at me is neighboring rights. So Sound Exchange in the US, PPL over here in the UK, they see that declining. Now, you could say, you know, no shit, Sherlock. You know, we've been expecting that for a while, but they've now got it in the forecast. And that's important because that's a large chunk of cash beginning to decline, which could put a drain on the overall growth figure going forward. For the people listening to your podcast, you do investments in music catalogs, who are modeling this market. That's a really important consideration, which is not only do we have CDs and downloads in decline, but we could have performance right income in decline as well. So there's a lot in there, but I just, again, I want to reiterate, media have excelled themselves. You've now got a really solid, credible forecast. Unlike not mentioning any names, some of the investment banks out there who I think just apply a ruler in a Northeast gradient and plot a line. If you actually apply a ruler to their forecasts, it fits their line pretty perfectly. And this one's this one, this is a really solid, credible piece of work. A lot to get into. I'm a big fan of Midia, uh, Mark Mulligan, uh, Keith Jopling, the team over there. They're absolutely fantastic. Um, you've got uh, a podcast called Bubble Trouble, and I haven't mm-hmm. missed one episode of bubble trouble you and richard kramer you know it's it's funny it's informative um i've learned so much from that one of the things i've learned is that you know economics is less in my mind about the economy and more about you know human behavior and incentives yeah um tell me a little bit about bubble trouble well I remember meeting Richard Kramer during lockdown and he was just making some observations in the stock market in a very sort of New York ranting, very loud way. People in New York could have heard him say this, it's that loud. But he was saying, look at Airbnb, nobody's staying during lockdown in hotels or bed and breakfasts, yet their stock price is up. Look at Uber, nobody can get into cars, their stock price is up. He was looking at the irrationality of markets and that made me interested in an observation that we both shared, which is why is it that half the stocks go up and half the stocks go down, 
Yet these analysts have got buys on everything. <laughs> you can't buy everything if half go up and half go down. And there's these two words that begin with the letter S, which really resonate. And it was, I think this is episode one of Bubble Trouble. We're now on the 50th episode. You're the hundredth of yours. But it's sycophants and stenographers. That is, these analysts, this analyst cottage industry's job is to appraise, not praise. Yet you jump onto these analyst calls and they congratulate the CEO on having a great quarter. Your job is not to congratulate the CEO. Your job is to drill into those numbers and work out what's really going on. And uh, the purpose of that podcast is to kind of expose a lot of that, which is how do we help our listeners work out what's really going on? Uh, its title, Bubble Trouble, is ironic and I would say it has appreciated in currency as the stock market has imploded. Um, and there's that famous story of the boy who cried wolf, which is why is it that we always seem to get a little bit overexcited in stock markets? We get ourselves a little bit frothy, markets get a little bit bubbly, and then comes the trouble. When will we ever learn the lessons of past mistakes? And the, currently we're exploring the metaverse. And boy, is there some bubble trouble around that terminology, trust me. <laughs> Speak to a festival promoter and ask if he's worried about the metaverse. And he'll just look at you in the face and say, no, people like real life. <laughs> uh, I also want to get back to kind of the media and then also some of the things you just kind of covered. To those of us that are just, you know, the average Joe in the music business, we look at, let's say, a, a particular investment bank report or the media report. We don't know how those things are created, how those things are calculated. Give us a sort of a snapshot of what, when you're doing these sort of forecasts, what is a best practice in terms of how you collect data and how you collate it and, and get to your numbers? Because it seems, you know, if you're just out there reading these things, you have no earthly idea how they are created or why one would be sort of something you wouldn't want to necessarily pay attention to or be suspect of. I mean, the data sources are out there. And in my work, I try and make as much of them free and available as possible. But, you know, the IFPI, Record Industry and Numbers Yearbook, that's a big one. My Global Value of Music Copyright, hopefully that explains a lot to this industry about just how much the entire business is worth, not just record labels, but the publishers and the collecting societies. So there's a lot of data out there you can use. Um, you can look at addressable market information, how many unique people have got a smartphone in an economy and your base forecast around that if you want to anchor your story. But for your average Joe, as you say, I mean, you can still spot mistakes. Like in some of these analyst notes I've seen from Wall Street, they're using US average revenue per user figures to plot global projections. No, 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 no. The per stream in America is bigger than the RPU in India. Let's just be mathematically clear on this. So you can't push that forward. And I, I don't think it's beyond the reach of your average Joe to spot these mistakes. And then, you know, bringing it back to the podcast, what we try and do with the podcast is give people the tools to spot where these mistakes are, you know, um, to, to, to be able to kind of you know, see the lichen from the bark, to be able to see through a lot of the glossy headlines and the, the ruler-based gradients in their, in their charts and try and work out what's really going on underneath it. You've got a number one mix on Mixcloud this year. We ain't done with 2021. Talk a little bit about that. And maybe you're sort of, as I look at your CV, you know, you had this lovely career of, of, of working in economics and then I'm sure much to the dismay of your family and friends, you find yourself in the music business. Talk about that kind of nexus and then talk about your, your mixed cloud. I've been doing mixed tapes since puberty, just for the record. 
Um, so this what Mixcloud allows me to do is just to continue doing what I love once a year, you know, digging in the crates and putting a mixtape together to capture all the music I think can move the needle, that can change culture. You know, this year's mix, I got to profile the band Salt, spelled S-A-U-L-T, I think the hottest band in the world right now. Um, but the whole mixtape culture for me was inspired by one lyric by a rapper called Mike G from the band The Jungle Brothers, where he said in 1989, he said, it's about getting the message across without crossing over which is how do you get your music across without diluting its integrity? You know, and when I heard him say that on the album Done by the Forces of Nature, when, you, when I heard that lyric, it just changed my life, which is that's your purpose, right? To discover art that wouldn't be discovered by anyone else and to get it across to an audience without diluting the integrity of the art itself. And what's a great honour for me on this year's mix is that Mike G opens a mix. So we have him giving a shout out and then I've put a rap by Mike G and the Jungle Brothers over a remix of Screamadelica and it just works a treat. Numbers are up. We're at 35,000 and counting. I've overtaken Erica Badu and I think it's the most listened mix of this year in Mixed Clouds. It shows I'm not a has-been yet. (laughs) I'm going to be not a has-been, but I'm really, if I can keep getting the message across without crossing over, that's what makes me happy. Not spreadsheets and contracts, but getting people to boogie. That's fantastic. So one thing I appreciate about you, Will, is that at your core, you're a music fan like we are. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, At the basis of everything, there's so many ways to discover music today. How do you discover new music? Well, I'll just touch on that media report again, because they're they're on the cusp of something which I think is going to be quite big. And this takes a bit of explaining, so bear with me. But they think it's less about the new, what's new, what's hot, what's on release radar, and more about the you. You know, who's Jay Gilbert? What's his life story? And there's a really big point we've got to hammer home here, which is Spotify knows me from 2009 to present. And Spotify will know you from, if you joined in the American Euro launch, 2011 to present. But you and I have been listening and loving music for a lot longer than 2009. So... If I, I remember working on Discover Weekly back in launch and discovering Secret Skin by Lloyd Cole and the Commotions, thinking, wow, Discover Weekly served me up this song. But I didn't discover it. I rediscovered it. We're talking recall here. That was a song I heard way back then that Discover Weekly served me up now. So you can see right there, this is not about the new, it's about the you. It's about getting to your life in music not what the algorithm thinks is new to your life in music. And I think that's where this is going to go. And for me, Discovery, uh, I'm big with the vinyl traders, websites like Discogs, Juno here in London, which is huge. Those two have got great promotional tools because they know what you're buying. So they know where your money is at. So they can give you a better recommendation than where your mouse is at. And then also just intimate groups. I mean, shout out to Vanessa Bakewell, um, Scott Williams, and Jamie Dolling, all these team, we have a we have a tight group of like 10, 15 people who recommend each other hip hop tracks. And that's been going on for 15 years. This will be irrelevant for most of your listeners, but all your listeners will have those little tight groups that they know and trust that they go to. So when you have a wealth of information, all this algorithmic choice, you have a poverty of attention. I think what we're wanting a bit more now is intimacy. Get to know who I am pre post Spotify and build my recommendations on what you know, because life began long before 2009. Uh, we've, just, uh, we've just heard some big news on user-centric. Kind of walk us through that. 
Yeah, so you've seen in the top story in Music Ally, Stuart Dredge did a great job reporting on this and SoundCloud talking about the results of their fan-powered royalties. Now, fan-powered royalties is a much sexier way of saying user-centric distribution, but it's important that we just go through this debate just for your listeners' benefit. As it currently stands, all the major streaming services do something called pro-rata distribution, which simply means if you get 1% of all the streams in this country for this month, you will get 1% of all the cash generated in this country for this month. Simples. Here's Tom with the weather. We're done. Everyone can figure that out. The user-centric model is like a fan club. So now all your money goes to just what you streamed. We're going to ring fence the money to your performance. And then it starts to get quite complicated. Um, But I think the debate really there is about fairness, ideally, my music, my money, versus efficiency. Pro rata is an efficient way of allocating money. User-centric is a fair way of allocating money. And there's a very important trade-off between those two. One thing that people don't often consider is a transparency element. Under pro rata, thanks to this thing called the law of averages, all streams are valued the same and they don't change much. I mean, since 2011, we've been talking about half a cent per stream. Um, you get a million streams, you get 5,000 bucks, you pull out your royalty from there. You can work it out in your head. Even a drummer can work it out in his head how much you're going to earn from streaming. And that's saying something. Whereas with, with user-centric, one stream could be worth a fraction of a fraction of half a cent per stream. And the other could be worth $5.13 because that one person streamed one song in an entire month. Now, when you introduce that volatility what happens to transparency. And that's that's just an interesting thing that, you know, you have to contend with this debate. But it's credit to SoundCloud for trying something new. I think their model is different from the, the big boys of Spotify, Amazon, Apple, and YouTube. But I do think we need to keep debating how do you make fair fairer? How do you put the letters E-R after the word fair? Current model is good. Uh, I don't consider upending it. But there are things you can do, things you can learn from the collecting societies, most interestingly, from the ASCAPs, the BMIs, the PRSs of this world, who for a 100 years have been adjusting the value of music. We've had streaming for 20 years. We've never adjusted it once. We never even adjusted the price point once. So there's so many lessons like duration-based. You know, check this out. So if Radio 1, BBC Radio 1, pays PRS and PPL, it's pro rata and it's duration-based. Longer songs earn more money. That's an objective decision made by the collective societies and BBC to price music that way. They don't have engineers. They don't have tech companies. But in our streaming world, we still haven't considered duration or time of day waiting or incentivizing better songs with bonus payments. All this type of stuff seems to be going on for 100 years in the collecting society world, but hasn't even started year one in the streaming world. And that, for me, puzzles me. I first reached out to you, Will, when I read this article that you wrote called Twitch's Rockonomics. And Mm -hmm. uh, we talked about it on this podcast a lot. We just thought it was so well written and it was such an area that was, I think, underreported at the time. But then, you know, you have this book, Tarzan Economics, Tarzan Economics, if I can say it correctly. And we can talk about that as well. But you published Malb Economics when inflation wasn't a thing, right? So now that it's big, um, how do you reflect on that work given prices are out of control? It's a big one. So Malb Economics was to 
to be provocative, to be really provocative, which is we've had this UK inquiry into streaming economics now for well over a year. We've had Nile Rogers being cross-examined by members of the British Parliament. I mean, if lockdown couldn't get any weirder, I mean, that that really, that took it to the next level. Um, and it's a great inquiry, great questions, great report, great responses. Um, I thought the Scarband Madness, their response to the inquiry was the best because it was one line. Dear Parliament, give us more money, the band. <laughs> Other people like droves and droves of pages with facts and figures. That was that was a madness summary. Um, but now we had a really, really good debate. And I think there's a point for what is largely an American audience in your podcast, which is contagion. Now Britain's had its inquiry. Stay tuned because you can bet your bottom dollar that America, Canada, France and Germany will want to copy us um, as well. But one thing the debate didn't raise or didn't even touch on was price. I don't think it's for the record labels to say the price is wrong. I don't think it's for the streaming services to say the price is wrong. I don't think it's for the politicians to say consumers getting music cheap. (laughs) That ain't going to get you (laughs) re-elected. That's not a vote winner. Um, So I thought, screw it, I'll say it. So I produced this work called Malbeconomics, which is a pretty unique word. Hopefully people see the pun there, Malbeconomics. That will crop up on Google um, to say, what's happened to a glass of wine Malbec wine, a medium glass, 175 milliliters of wine over the past 20 years. And what's happened to the price of music? So just to go back in time, on the 3rd of December, 2001, Rhapsody, you remember Rhapsody? Rhapsody got its license for 15,000 catalog songs and the price it was given was 9.99 to match the cost of a blockbuster video rental card, which I just find hilarious. We are now podcasting in mid-July 2022, way more than 20 years after that event. And guess what? In euro, sterling, and dollar is 9.99. And we're not talking 15,000 songs here. We're talking 80 million songs. We're talking smartphones, apps, collaborative listening. So music's offered more and more and more, but it charges less and less and less in both nominal and real terms. This is key. 2.3 2.3 people paying 14.99 for a family plan. Sorry to bombard you with numbers here. That's £6.50 each. That's not 9.99. It's getting cheaper on the face value. It's getting cheaper when you strip out inflation. Whereas that one glass of wine hasn't changed one milliliter, but their price has gone from £4 to £8. They've doubled. So my point is, why is it that wine charges more and more for exactly the same? But music is in this weird world where we charge less and less for offering more and more. And there's a weird term that statisticians get a woody over here called hedonic pricing, right? Not hedonistic pricing. That's the cost of your drugs in the disco era, um, which fluctuate with inflation. But hedonic pricing, if you think about cloud computing, a unit of cloud computing should half every three years, according to Jeff Bezos. So how do you adjust for the fact that you can get more and more for less and less? And weirdly, by commoditizing music, we're doing the same thing. We're offering more and more, yet we charge less and less. But it's a really successful model. Then you look across the fence and look at video streaming. I just looked at my bank statement today. Netflix, $15.99 a month. Where did that happen? That was $7.99 when I signed up. And I'm paying for Disney Plus and Amazon Prime and my BBC license fee. So... Uh, <laughs> Harry Truman said, find me an economist who's got one arm because we get away with saying, on one hand this, on the other hand that. On one hand, we are clearly not doing enough on price. On the other hand, 
we've got a success in the music business that's the envy of everyone else. And I'm not quite sure how to weigh it up, but I did want to initiate that debate on price, which thankfully, thankfully we did that really well. I'd like to follow up with that question. Is there, I mean, you've been inside the boardrooms. Is there a fear of just going first? There doesn't seem to be a fear with the video streamers. Um, is is that what's going on? Is there sort of just this group mentality that, oh, oh we can't be the first to do that? Or we, why is that? It's strange. It's a good question. You make me think of petrol pricing, which in this country, at least, is a big talking point. We never used to discuss the cost of a gallon. Boy, do we discuss it now. But there was that big fear of like which 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 petrol station was going to raise price first because it's just petrol and you could always go to the other station which raises prices last. And I think there may be an element of that. But equally, if we go back to this kind of Wall Street language of the addressable market, at least in Britain, half the addressable market is now paying for a streaming service. So how do you get the other half in? Or do you just want to stop now? So if you want to get the other half in, well, a couple of observations, clearly they're the least willing to pay because they haven't paid yet. And two, the best way to get them is not to raise prices. So I think there's a combination of who moves first, but equally, when does this party grind to a halt? When do we go from the herbivores that we've had for the past 10 years, where we can all grow our services together, to carnivores, where the only way I can grow my subscription base is by stealing some of yours? I think when you make that switch, this whole pricing debate becomes really spicy. Interesting. Uh, then uh, on something completely different, how do you think about higher quality audio offers and spatial audio like Dolby Atmos for the health of this business? Both Jay and I are huge fans of, of immersive music. I'm curious to get your thoughts. Uh, so hat tip to Apple Music, the whole team there and the teams at Dolby. I love what they've done. I switched. I am now a fully paid up member of Apple Music's community. And my litmus test, and I'm not speaks to my older brother, Tom, who's far brainier than me and gets this stuff far better than me, but I'm not the techie on sound quality. I listen. I listen to the terminology. My litmus test is to go to the most important album of all time, which is Miles Davis' Kind of Blue, play flamenco sketches and ask, can you hear them brush the hi-hat? Because in that recording, that's a key part of the composition. Now, brushing the hi-hat for me is a sound that gets lost through compression, a sound that gets lost through the dilution of sound quality. And when you switch to Apple Music and you listen to Kind of Blue, yes, you can hear that brush and you can hear that hi-hat loud and clear. And that, for me, makes me switch. You know, that is a value proposition, which, you know, I ain't going to turn a blind eye to. I got to move where the sound quality is. And also, and you know, what Apple's doing in spatial audio is just part of the story. What's going on in that space is really exciting, but there's a psychology of sound quality can only get better. There's a network effect. The creator has to work with spatial audio. The consumer gets to experience spatial audio. And the question I would love to ask is, let me check this one out, Jay, for you, sir. Um, if you're consuming music with a superior sound quality, if you're engaging in a spatial audio experience where the creator developed the tools, consumers enjoying the tools, does that you make you return to the album as a body of work? Because what we've seen streaming do is to shake the album up. And I just wonder whether there's something in there which says, now the sound quality has been enhanced, the intimacy is there, the feeling is there, that this collection of 10 songs ordered in this way will be consumed in the way that those artists who spent two years in the studio 
wanted it to be consumed again. That's part of the magic of music that's kind of been lost in the streaming revolution and spatial might help bring it back. Now, Mike and I had the pleasure of spending some time in the studio with Greg Penny, who's been doing these Whoa. Dolby Atmos mixes for Elton John, the Beatles, and so on. And I, I got to tell you, the first time I went in, we listened to Here Comes the Sun. I, I had tears streaming down my face. I'd never heard anything like that. I could hear when George would go and take a breath before he would sing a line. And mm -hmm. I, I was sold uh, 100%. I think that it's one of those things that when people hear it, they get it. Um, but it's difficult to convey that to the average music fan that you need something better. Uh, a lot of folks are okay with just the radio in their car. It, that song sounds good. It's free. I'm listening. That's, that's great. But I think with Dolby Atmos, spatial audio, you need to hear it to really appreciate it and understand it. But, what I wanted to ask you about is, is there a value to that? Should, should spatial audio or lossless audio or these other newer formats that focus on quality, should they cost more? Or do you think that should be the basis of how streaming moves forward? Well, I want to quickly tackle lossless audio sure. because I, I think that is almost... That's a game of catch-up, which is lossless audio solved a storage problem which previously couldn't be solved. So that's not necessarily an advancement. That's just a way of we can now work out how to get larger files into your Apple Music collection that we previously couldn't work out. So we're, we just caught up on history effectively. Spatial is where the game is. And I argue no because of the network effect. That is, you need more creators to adopt spatial audio for more consumers to enjoy it. The more consumers, the more creators. How valuable is having one telephone? Low. How valuable is having two phones and say more? Three, even more. So that network effect for spatial to reach its potential, I don't think you want price to be a prohibitive factor in that one. You want it to be a conducive factor, a fostering factor to the success of spatial audio as well. And then just... To wheel back, I do think this is big, Jay. I really do. I think, you know, you say like some people are just happy with FM radio in their car and that's it. We've all got artists that we love. We might just be that person who's happy with some crackly FM radio in their car, but we have artists that we love and we all want that intimate relationship with those one, two, three artists that we love. I mean, weirdly, and hopefully this doesn't sound a bit too wacky to you, but if you think about the rap band, The Tribe Called Quest, I've always loved, rest in peace, God bless his soul, Fife Dobbs ability to rap, the way he phrases. Because what you hear when he raps is his throat. It comes from the throat. Most rappers don't do that. He raps from the throat. And I would love a spatial audio experience of rediscovering Fife Dog through that enhanced sound quality to get to what that guttural property that made his rap so unique. And then if I love it, I want all my friends to love it too. And that's the network effect kicking in right there. So we all have our little niche, you know, guilty secrets, guilty pleasures in music, but we're going to share them when we get closer to them through spatial. I'm really strong on this. Of course, the challenge, have, and Jay and I have, have both seen this firsthand, is that if there's no premium price effect for these like let's say spatial audio who's paying for those those remixes who's paying to, for that engineer to go back and, and re record it and that's the rub that we've seen which is 
yes, it's great, but nobody wants to step forward and pay for it within the within the label groups. Why are we going back and spending more money on this when the return isn't going to be great? And I'm sure Jay and I both say, would say the same thing. It's so disappointing to hear that, and I and I hope that that doesn't basically kill spatial audio. Um, I wouldn't want to get into the weeds of who who picks up the bill, uh, like who pays for your company offsite. I guess it'd be a similar type of debate there, but. Um, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't, at the consumer end, if you had to pay more for it, I think we'd have fewer people engaging in it and it'd be net, on balance, it'd be detrimental to the pickup. We're in the early stages of this and my belief is it can go to mass adoption. And because of that belief, I, I'm not sure the pricing debate should be seen as one which which could restrict the adoption of this, this. I don't want to quote a 90-year-old Australian Rupert Murdoch here, but when he launched Sky in this country, he had this great slogan. And by the way, I don't pay for Sky. I never have. They had this great slogan called Believe in Better. Three words, Believe in Better. And I want to pull that up here because you've got to, with the state of music today, believe in better. We've done great things in 20 years. We've come out of the staring into the abyss with Napster and set off in this recovery and publishing catalogs are going for 23 times multiples. Glory days, glory days, but you've got to believe in better. And if I can't hear the drummer on a kind of blue brush, the hi-hat on Spotify, I'm switching because I got to hear that. I got to believe in better. And I think that's what you're going to start to see. That's where you're going to see sound quality really start to kick in in terms of mass adoption, believing in better. As we wind down here, Will, um, I want to make sure that we touch on Tarzan economics. It's something mm. that Mike and I have talked about on this podcast uh, quite frequently, so our listeners are uh, aware of it. But I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about Tarzan economics and what it's all about and uh, how you came about uh, writing that book. I'll tell you exactly, and I'll also tell you some of the interesting audiences that's picked up as well. Um, the book is, it captures my passion. My passion is to teach economics, not just to economists, but my dad, uh, who taught me economics when I was 11 years old, said the secret is teaching an audience who, A, doesn't think they're going to understand it, B, doesn't want to understand it, but most importantly, C, has to understand it. And I remember as an 11-year-old kid, that one really hitting home. If you could master that art, you know, what could you do with it? And the book allows me to do that at scale. And it's simply to say that music was the first to suffer from digital disruption, 10 years fighting change post-Napster, first to recover from digital disruption, 10 years embracing streaming, seeing the recovery, which is the envy of everyone else. There's got to be a handful of lessons that I can tease out from that journey that are relevant to everyone else. And I tease out eight, eight principles in pivoting through disruption, eight principles in letting go of the old vine and embracing the new. One of my favorite ones is just, you know, to quote that 90-year-old Australian Rupert Murdoch, to get to work with News Corp and the newspaper industry. Boy, they've got a Napster moment on their hands. And they asked me, what's the point where we realize we have to let go of our old way of doing things? I mean, subscriber numbers are a fraction of what music's achieved. Prices are in free fall, churn is through the roof. <laughs> if you look at newspaper models, you need to understand one thing, churn, churn, and churn, and a bit more churn. It is churn rampant in that world. Uh, music, you join, you stay. Newspapers, you join, you deliberately hop off to hop back on again. Um, so the example I gave 
Um, and it's a very British example, and it involves public transport. So people in California may struggle with this one, but we'll stick with it. Um, but the example I gave was uh, King's Cross Station, which is in North London, not far from here, actually. And up until 2013, 2014, it was, forgive my language, a bit of a shithole. Okay, a rat's den. You know, around the back of King's Cross Station, you'd find pedophiles, prostitutes, and politicians, often in the same car. So... When we rebuilt King's Cross Station, not only was it the biggest train station in Great Britain, but it had the biggest concourse in Great Britain. But what I found interesting is there was no space for newsagents. Wait, wait, wait. There was space for selling posh Belgian chocolates, but nowhere to sell newspapers and magazines. So if you're in that business, that right there is a Napster moment, because since the time of the Victorians, we built train stations which are hip-to-hip, side-by-side, newspaper stalls. You're going to sit on a train for three hours, you buy something to read. We don't buy something to read anymore. It's already on a piece of glass called our smartphones. So I just give you that as an example of, you know, everywhere you look, you're seeing Napster moments hit industries, which hit our industry that we know and love 20 years ago. So the book is to reach out to them, to preach to the unconverted, you know, the Royal Navy really got into the book. I was like, what? The Royal Navy? It's like, why? And they said to me, well, you had this line in the book, which is the best thing that EMI could have done around the time of Radiohead and Rainbows. Like the band and the management tell a story of in Rainbows in the book for the first time ever. So we're talking here around 2007, 2008. Said so the best thing that Guy Hans should have done with EMI was to stop selling CDs. Guy Hans said, what on earth do you mean? CDs make up 95% of my business here at EMI. So the one thing that's upholding your business is killing your business. So that's like an interesting observation. Media love the book, but to reach those parts, the Heineken effect, to reach parts of the audience that you wouldn't normally reach and realize the Royal Navy is wanting to learn from disruption, uh, to realize that governments, your government in America, my government in the UK is wanting to learn from disruption and adoption of data science. You know, that's what makes me happy. Getting the message across without crossing over. That's what the books achieve me to do. So Mike G would be proud. Nice. That's awesome. Well, as we wrap up here, where can people learn more about Bubble Trouble, Tarzan Economics, your your writing, your work? Where should people go to learn more about you? Two homes, tarzaneconomics.com, uh, a beautiful website, uh, all credit to the designers there. And that's a great resource for executives, but especially, and when my website designer said to me, okay, you're going to build your first ever website, what's your audience? Students. So any students listening to your show, of which I know there are many, an amazing resource there where you'll find past publications, relevant data points. If you're doing a thesis or you have to convince your CFO of a business case, there'll be juice in that website that's going to help you do your do your job. So that's really important give to the audience. So tarsaneconomics.com. And then if you flip it over to bubbletroublepodcast.com, that's where you'll find the podcast currently uh, chewing into the subject of the metaverse. The most recent episode is with Rashi Wasaki from IDG Consulting. And it's just a beautiful layout of how what the metaverse is, but also, and this is the key bit, what the metaverse isn't. We want to cover both sides of that coin. And again, if that can help educate our audience, help them avoid bubble troubles in the future, <laughs> never mind the one that we're stuck in right now, then that's a good thing too. Fantastic. Thank you, sir. We really, yeah, thanks, really Will. appreciate it. Happy 100th birthday. I got to say, you only look about 25 years old, but 100, you're doing great. You're going to get a telegram happy from the 50th. Queen. <laughs> I feel 100. Yeah, yeah. congratulations on uh, 50 with uh, Bubble Trouble. 
uh, please uh, tell uh, Richard, your co-host, that uh, I'm a huge fan. I love listening to you guys, and you know, I'm not the uh, I'm not the economist, and I've learned so much just listening to you. Uh, kind of deconstruct things and you know I don't read financial times but your interviews with folks from financial times have just been enlightening I've just learned oh, so masters. much Greek uh, masters that podcast with Greek was just on fire she was yes. phenomenal you're tapping 35 years of frontline <laughs> experience in financial journalism and when you learn about how they took down Wirecard in Germany you know when the German government was trying to take down the financial times these people have thick skin. Ugh. Yeah, that's when you respect quality journalism. You know, yeah. there's very few book masters out there. The world would be a better place if we could multiply the number of book masters out there. She's yeah. a hero of mine. I love the way you yeah. guys talk because it, it sounds like we're listening into the three of you having tea somewhere, not knowing <laughs> anybody was listening in because it's very casual. You have a good relationship and rapport with her, so it's not stiff and thought out and. I mean, it's deliberate, but it's very conversational. It's super cool. Appreciate that. Well, yeah. I'll pass that yes. All right. And I just wanted to add that, that the Tarzan economics is, you know, Jay and I talk a lot about books and, and we reference them and, you know, whatever the number is, and I'm going to say it's maybe top four books of, of music industry stuff that you just have to read. You have to read it. And so it's, it's, I know it's hard to put a book together, but boy, you sure hit the nail on the head and uh, big, big props. I addressed the trade body for music education in America. And this is not on a sales tip or a self-egotistical promotional tip, but I would love the book to be seen alongside Don Passman. So Don Passman gets oh, your head around 100%. the law. I get that. You need the law. You need to understand the law. But you're playing golf with one hand if you don't also get your head around the economics. And I'd love it to be a sort of a, a double act there of you need Passman and Page to get your way through a music degree. Yeah. Amen, brother. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.